You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. We're in a series walking through the latter part of the book of Judges together, and it's the series called The Conquerors. There's kind of a little, a little subtitle, a subline that will kind of run as a thread throughout the remainder of the series. And, and that little subtitle is simply this, all of us in life will either be, be conquerors or conquered by life or we'll be conquerors in life through the power of God. That's kind of the two choices, kind of the tension that we live inside of. We'll either be the conquered or we'll be the conquerors. And we're already told, the Lord told, tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that we are more then conquerors in Christ, the one who, who loves us. And so our identity in Christ is that we're already more than conquerors in Christ because of his love for us. Why then sometimes do the people of God, why is it that we allow the world and the enemy and life itself and circumstances and our emotions to conquer us? With your copy of God's word, would you turn with me please to Judges chapter 10? I wanna encourage you every Sunday to bring a copy of God's word with you for us to open that up together. If you forgot your copy of God's Word today, I'm certain someone next to you be very glad to share with you. You can go to your Bible app and let's go to Judges chapter 10 together and see what God says to us as we've gathered in his name today. Judges chapter 10 will begin in, in verse 1. Give you a moment to get there. Last week, chapter 9 was Abimelech. Abimelech kills his 70 brothers in order to be made king. Um, he is the son of Gideon, one of the former judges. And so he has killed his brothers and he has been killed himself. And so we pick up in, in chapter 10 after Abimelech is gone. Chapter 10, verse one, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. We've got to stop right there. The son of, son of Dodo. On your worst day, you can always thank God that your mama and your daddy did not name you Dodo. There's always something. Pua at that. I mean, Pua is not that much better, but uh, you can thank God that this morning, unless your name is Dodo, that the Lord did not, did not call you that through your parents' naming. So back to Tola, son of Pua, <laughs> son of Dodo, a man of Ishkar, which means he was a man of, of, of reputation of fighting. Uh, the Ish- Ishkars were, were named back in the book of Numbers as men who were, who were warriors. And so we see of, of Tola here, he was, he was a warrior. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel for 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him rose Jair the Gileadite who judged Israel for 22 years. And this is a very powerful verse here. And he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair and to this day, which are in the land of Gilead, and Jair died, and he was buried, and come on. Let, let's see what's happening here first. Uh, verses three and verse four about Jair. What Jair is doing is he is he's consolidating power. He, he is moving his sons into a place of succession here. He is setting up for himself a dynasty. And I think the reason that the 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys was even mentioned in God's word is that donkeys were a, a picture of political power. It is why in the New Testament, when Jesus comes in from the east side of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, people were amped up. They began to wave these palm branches and they were yelling out, save us. Blessed is this one who is coming in the name of the Lord because they thought that Jesus was coming as a political leader, uh, as a military leader to free them from the oppression of 
of the Romans. And so more than likely, that is why we see 30 sons riding 30 donkeys because Jair desires his sons to be in, in a political dynasty after him. Look at um, other places and judges with me this morning to see that same consolidation of power where the judges are beginning to a- adopt kind of the system of the world, the characters, characteristics of the nations around them. You're in Judges 10. So just go two pages to the right, maybe just one page to the right. Look at Judges chapter 12 with me as we see some other judges also trying to, to consolidate this power, trying to, to pass along to their sons, their grandsons, this, this lineage of power, this entitlement of power. These future judges were selfishly taking on the characteristics of, of the surrounding nations. Look at Judges chapter 12. Look at verse 8 with me. So after him, Ibzon of Bethlehem, he, he judged Israel. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters that he gave in marriage outside of his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from the outside for his sons. And he judged Israel for seven years. And Ibzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. So here is Ibzon. He is creating these political alliances by having these political marriages. And it's always a dangerous thing for any, for the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, to bring outsiders in the family for, for marriage. Jump down to verse 13 of that same chapter, Judges chapter 12, verse 13. And after him, which is actually Elam, but after him came Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, who judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. So of course, he collected 70 donkeys for them to ride on. And he judged Israel for eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, Parathonite, he died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And so here you see also Abzon, uh, Abdon, him collecting up his sons, his grandsons as political successors. You know, here we are all these thousands of years later, and I feel like we're still doing that today. Like politicians or those who are elected kind of gathering their sons, gathering their grandsons around them. And that's, that's the D's and the R's both do that. And so we all, all, almost see that all the way back to this time, trying to consolidate power. I think in that, this morning, we can see a few human tendencies that we all have, some, some human leanings, some, some capacities that we all have. And here's the first thing that I want you to see just from these few verses right here. Here's a human leaning that we all have. We want our names to be lasting. We want our names to be maximized. We want our names to be both larger than life and longer than life. And we see that human tendency in these judges already in Judges chapter 10, Judges chapter 12. They want their names to continue on. They want their names to be maximized, to to last, to be larger than life, to be longer than life. And that's the human tendency of everyone in this house today. It's the tendency of the human heart, which is why I think the prayer of John chapter 3 verse 30 is so recalibrating for all of us. In fact, I might say it's a prayer that we should pray Daily, It's a very short prayer. And here's how it goes. Jesus, you increase that I may decrease. Because in all of us, in our human nature, our human leanings, there's a desire to, to maximize our names, to make our names great, to make our names lasting. That's what's happening here with some of these judges. And the people at this point in, in the history of Israel, they were growing accustomed to having a king over them, not necessarily a judge. You might remember the first six men and, and women who ruled over Israel they were actually given the title of judge. But then back in Abimelech, you might remember from last week, they didn't want a judge, they wanted a king. We don't want someone just kind of tell us and help us with judgments. We want someone to rule over us. We want a human to rule over us. God, you're not gonna do, we don't want you as our king. We want a king that we 
can see. And so we begin to see this pattern now in the latter half of the book of Judges where they weren't looking, the people of God weren't looking for a judge to help them with decisions. They were looking for a king to tell them how to live their life. And I believe that's a a human leaning of all of us. Certainly we see this in the human nature of those in the book of Judges. And I just wrote this down as a human leaning. We would rather see a lesser king than believe in a greater one. I mean, all of us in this house, our, our hearts lean in that direction. I wanna see what I love. I wanna see what I worship. Even if it's a lesser God, even if it's a, it's a lesser king. And often we, we stumble in that in our hearts, in our human leanings, that we wanna see a God, even if it's a lesser God, than believe in a greater one that we cannot see. I, I wonder at times if this is why God is a jealous God. The jealousy of God is not a character flaw of God. It's the care of God. Because he sees that we sadly will follow and worship God's lesser than he. And when you and I worship and follow God's lesser than Jehovah God, the God of, of Abraham and Isaac, the God of heaven and earth, if we choose to worship and follow lesser gods, then it means we're gonna have a lesser life, lesser joy, less, less life in our, in our journey. And so we see here, maybe a lot of us in this house, we have that tendency of leaning in our heart as well to go ahead and bow down before a lesser king that we can see rather than believe in in a greater one. Judges chapter 10, verse six, we'll see kind of the next human leaning here. Judges chapter 10, verse six, and the people of Israel again, again, that's kind of the, that's the operative word of the book of Judges, just over and over again in the cyclical nature. The people of God rebel, then they cry out to God, then God delivers them with the judge, and then the people rebel, then they cry out to God, and God delivers them with the judge, just over and over again. And verse six, here's what it says, the people of Israel again, uh, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the God of Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of, of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, this is another change right here in the middle of the book of Judges. Up until this time, the people of God, the Israelites, the covenant people of God, the chosen of God, during their seasons of rebellion, they seemed to bow down just to one other God. They would leave God, the greater king, and head off for a, a lesser God, a false God, but it was usually one God at a time, the God of the Moabites during some seasons, during the time of, uh, of, of Eglon and, and the judge Ehud, they would bow down to the gods of, of the Moabites. Then other times, in times of, of Gideon, they would bow down to the gods of, of the Midianites. So usually during every season of rebellion in the life of the people of God in the book of Judges, they would bow down to one God. But look at what's happening right here. This is a big change, a big switch that's happening here in Judges chapter 10. Let me just count them out loud with you very quickly. They weren't just forsaking God for another God. They served the God of Baals, that's one, the God of Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, that's three, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, that's five, the gods of the Ammonites, that's six, and the gods of the Philistines, that's, that's seven gods. They forsook the Lord and they did not serve God, uh, the, the one true God, but instead served these seven other gods. Guys, that's never happened before in the book of Judges. I think it's the human leaning, human nature. I just put this in my notes for you. If we will bow to any false God, we will bow to every false God. If we'll bow down to one, we'll bow down to seven. If we will forsake the Lord, 
and refuse to serve him, to bow before him, to know him, to love him, to worship him. Our human leanings, our human nature, the capacity that all of us have in this room in our hearts is not just to bow down to one false God. If we'll bow down to one, we'll bow down to hundreds. That's the human leaning we begin to see here in the book in the book of Judges, God knows the conditions of our hearts. I mean, he knows that all of us in this room, if I can steal a wonderful phrase, our hearts are all idol makers. Our hearts are all idol factories. We produce idols all the time that we will bow down before any God we can find, any God we can create. And while that screen is on the screen behind me, that slide's on the screen behind me and in front of you, let me just tell you that if if you live in these three human leanings, you will constantly be conquered by life. If you live in these three human nature conditions on the screen behind me, you will constantly be conquered by the enemy, by the flesh, by self-centeredness, by life itself. And what we're about to read, Highland, I want you to understand the, these next 10 verses we're about to read together. I think are some of the deepest pictures of God that you will see throughout the entire Old Testament. I think the next 10 verses we're about to read speak deeper to the character and the heart of the God of heaven and earth, maybe, maybe more than any other 10 verses in all of the Old Testament. There is some deep doctrine we're about to step into when we see here the theology of God and his heart and his character toward his people. So with that said, would you look with me at Judges chapter 10, verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Your Bible might say the, the, the anger of God burned against the Israelites, burned against his people, and he sold them. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites. And they, the Ammonites, they crushed, they crushed they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were even beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. A crushing. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim. And so the people of Israel, so the Israel itself was severely distressed. There was a, a crushing. God sells them. And they're crushed by their enemies. The, the, the word crushed in, in Hebrew is the Hebrew word ratatz, and it means to, to violently pound something until it's in small pieces. It means to pulverize something. It means to stay on top of something until it is broken down. Ratatz is a violent word. It's a, it's a heavy word. It's a, it's a sad word in Hebrew. It means to be broken down completely. It means to be crushed into pieces. And so here is God allowing this crushing, this, this oppress, oppression. Look at verse nine, this distressing of his people. In verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites, they oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet, you have forsaken me and have served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. 
Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the name and in the time of your distress. Here comes God in a passage of scripture that we don't sing about or stamp onto our t-shirts often at all. I'm not gonna forgive you anymore. I will save you no more. I will hear you no more. Go and cry out to the idols that you've been bowing down to. Go and cry out to those false gods that you have been worshiping and see if they will save you in your time of distress. Can I just tell you that God has every right to say that to every person in this house when we go and bow down to other things? Okay, you wanna bow down to that? To that passion, to that addiction, to that pleasure? Go ahead. But in your time of distress, call out to them and see if they'll save you. Call out to them and see if they will bring you out of of the bondage, bring you out of the fear, to bring you out of this time of distress. God would be more than justified to tell every one of us to go back to everything we have loved more than him and ask those things if they can save us in our time of need. Judges chapter 10, verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. So just do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. This, Highland, is the cry of humanity. Who's gonna save us? Who is going to to deal and take away this, this shame of ours? Who will step in and rescue us from the lowest points of our lives? And so they put away the foreign gods from among them. Verse 16. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And wow, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. He began to grow in his compassion. He could bear no longer the hopelessness of his people. God here is grieved, not just by the rebellion of his people, but now the rebellion, the consequences of the rebellion. He is grieved by that. He is, he is moved by this. This is the love of God. This is the kindness of God. This is a God who is rich in compassion. So here comes the three really deep doctrines we see this morning about the character of God in his relationship with his people. And these three things, by the way, are still true today. They were not crossed off the character of God at the cross or after the cross. Here's the first thing I want you to see. We read it in verse seven. God's justice demands a separation. The justice of God, it demands a separation. We see it back in verse seven. I want you to see it just one more time. The anger of the Lord was kindled. His, his anger was lit up. His justice was stirred. His wrath was, was peaked. In fact, that word anger there in Hebrew is an interesting phrase. It actually means his nostrils flared. There was so much anger. There was so much wrath stirring in his heart, even toward his own people. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them. He got rid of them. He put them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites. God was saying, your unholiness is hitting head to head with my holiness and something's got to give and it's going to be you. I'm selling you. I'm separating myself from you. You will leave, you will go. I am pushing you away. I am handing you off to another. God's justice demands that separation in his holiness. 
he was saying here, I cannot be in a covenant relationship with those who are so unholy. There's gonna have to be a separation. I am selling you to a godless nation. Here's the second thing we see. God brings down a crushing on this rebellion. God brings down a crushing on on our rebellion. Look at verse eight. We we see that word again. We'll read it again. And, And they, meaning the Ammonites, they crushed. They pressed down on the people of Israel that year. And again, for another 18 years, they oppressed. They crushed all of the covenant people of God because of their disobedience. And so here's the second thing I want you to see that's so deep this morning in this passage, that God brings down a crushing on our rebellion. Let me say it one more time. The word crush means, the word retots in Hebrew, and it means to, to press down into oblivion. To press down until there's only small pieces left. To press down until that nation or that person is completely broken. I thought about it this week. How often in the Old Testament does God have to crush rebellion? How often does something have to come down and literally crush into pieces? I thought this week about the sins of humanity during the days of Noah. How the rain came down and the floods came up and it crushed the people for their sin. Thought about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God allowed sulfur and brimstone to fall from from the heavens and to crush the sin, to crush the rebellion of the people in those two cities, to crush those two cities themselves. I, I thought this week about the Egyptians when they were crushed because of their stubbornness by the hail that came as a seventh plague. It came and it crushed their crops. It, it crushed people. It began to crush cities there within Egypt. It was, it was a crushing for their rebellion. I thought about the Egyptian army as they were pursuing the Israelites. And when they came to the Red Sea, the, the walls of the Red Sea, they came and it crushed down upon the Egyptian army. They crashed back into the seabed. That is, that is God bringing down a crushing on our rebellion. You can go to the book of Deuteronomy and over and over again, there are laws that say you can crush somebody by stoning for sexual sin, for idolatry, for cursing God, for rebellion against mom and dad. You can stone them. That was a law in the book of Deuteronomy to stone, to crush people. Even last week, we saw evil Abimelech being crushed by a millstone of a lady who dropped it from the top of that tower. There is a crushing that God brings on our rebellion. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this passage about the character of God, this kind of deeper doctrine. This would definitely be highly in the upper story of Judges chapter 10. God must do something with our disobedience. He's gonna have to do something with our disobedience. I know we've read it already, but verse 10 through verse 13 is such a powerful picture that God has to do something. And the people of Israel cried out again to the Lord, verse 10, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the bells. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, but didn't I already save you? I've already rescued you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Mayanites. They oppressed you, they crushed you, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me. And served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. If God were solely a God of love, he could probably dismiss these sins. Sweep them under the rug. Out of his kindness and his compassion, just say, hey, it was a, it was a terrible mistake you made. 
But you see, God is not only solely love. He is also perfectly just. So something has to be done with with this sin. We can't just break the law of a holy God and expect just to walk away. Someone must pay. Someone must die. Someone must bleed. Someone's gonna have to be crushed for this. The three things you see on the screen behind me, I will say again, are still true to this very morning about the character of God. So how is it then? How can these three things be true? Who, who was gonna reconcile us back to God after we were separated? Who was it that would repurchase us after we'd been sold that we might never be separated from God's love again? Who would it be that would be crushed for our rebellion? What was God going to do with the required penalty of our sin? What was God gonna do? And to hear the answer, would you stand with me, please? Who is going to reconcile us back to God? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the powerful arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our sins and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and the Lord makes his life a guilt offering and after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied for by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities he poured out his life to the point of death. He bore the weight of the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. That is what God was gonna do to reconcile us, to bring us back, to repurchase us that we might never again be separated from the love of God which is in this man of sorrows, Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters in Christ, 
the love of God and the justice of God meet at the cross of Jesus. 100% love, 100% justice. The only place those two things to be perfectly seen is a sacrifice of love and grace, but also a sacrifice of justice. This is what our God did. Would you bow your head with me, please, as we pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. It's a reminder that we just see Jesus on every page of Scripture. Forgive us, God, and we have bowed down to lesser gods that we can see instead of believing in a greater God of heaven and earth. It's been human nature since Genesis chapter 3, human nature in Judges chapter 10, and human nature in October of 2019. Oh God, would you remind us the power and the purpose of the cross of Jesus, where your love and your justice, oh God, perfectly meet that we might live forever and never be separated again from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus that we pray that we believe these things together. Amen.